This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is Burning Questions, Not People. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. This is Season 1, Episode 7 of Wild Olive, and today we're talking about violence in the Bible and about two pieces of American literature and culture that respond to the Bible's violence. We're talking about Native American author Sherman Alexie's poem, Crow Testament, and Jim Jarmusch's movie, Dead Man. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird. And I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Jean. Nice to be back here with you. It is nice. And hey, listeners, we've got an unsettling topic on the docket today. It's something I rarely hear talked about at church, but something you can't avoid if you actually read the Bible. Many biblical texts are extremely violent. I've taught a fair number of Bibleist literature classes in which I've had students who grew up in church read whole books of the Bible for the first time, and come away shocked at the amount of violence and the types of violence in a collection that sometimes gets called the good book. This often happens with my Catholic students. I don't want to single out Catholics. It happens with all kinds of (laughs) church-going folk, not singling out Catholics. But as someone who was raised Catholic, I know that for some Catholics, sometimes one only hears short snippets of biblical literature that are included in the Mass. When I was growing up, we heard a little snippet of Old Testament, a little snippet of New Testament, but we didn't make a habit of reading, say, all of Exodus, all of Joshua, all of Judges or Kings. When we read those books in my college classes, my Catholic students are often shocked at the amount of violence in those books. I don't know how many times I've heard the phrase, I never read that. I never knew that. I didn't know that was in there. So I wanted to ask you, Jennifer, since you have a whole chapter in Permission Granted on violence in the Bible, why did you think it was important to include that chapter? Yes, I can echo all of what you've said. It's so many students saying, I didn't know that was in the Bible. And actually, your reference to calling it the good book is precisely what I hear students saying. I thought this was a holy book. I thought the Bible was God's word and that it was only full of good and holy things. So yeah, the inclusion of chapter five, violence, and then the subtitle is kind of a play the language everyone understands, is part of my way of saying this is present. It's prevalent, maybe in our culture, but it is prevalent in Scripture to the point where people either do acknowledge it and have a really hard time figuring out what to do with it, or they're what is more common in a church setting, finding ways to not acknowledge it, not address it, to Find ways to justify it even, or simply redirect away from acknowledging that it's in there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, and what's important to me also, and this isn't where we're going today, but I do want to note that from my perspective, the violence in the two Christian testaments is not relegated to the Hebrew Bible, but it is also in the Newer Testament. 
It isn't the same kind of violence where we see God telling the people to go kill the Canaanites, go kill all these people in front of you, for instance, as we see in Joshua. But we do see language that incites violence. And we do see rhetoric, in particular from Paul, that incites divisiveness, it, that instills in people kind of the seeds of competitiveness and um, some of these, what I think of as really negative elements of certain kinds of cultures. So from my perspective, it's I, I want to read all of these different scriptures very critically and aware, with an awareness to what they're communicating. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And I'm glad you brought up that old stereotype or chestnut about violence somehow. There being more violence in the Old Testament and nothing but light in the the Newer Testament. And of course, the crucifixion story is one of the most violent stories that anyone could imagine. It's this scene of horrific torture and suffering and death and humiliation. And often in church settings, the rhetoric suggests that it's something that God wanted or needed. And I don't know what could be more violent than that. And I I really think that that idea of um, somehow a warlike God in the Older Testament and a loving God in the Newer Testament as a stereotype really breaks down if you ever read Revelation to John, because yes. I don't know what, yes. how there could be more violence than there, than there is in that book. And such hor- horrific levels of violence and almost a delight in the kinds of, of violence. I know that there's a Newer Testament scholar who writes about Revelation and talks about it as an ancient form of a horror text. Um, <laughs> Tina. Tina Pippin. Tina Pippin. Yeah. P P I N. She's lovely. Yes. Yeah. I like that. I should say, <laughs> not like, but mm-hmm. I really get that way. Appreciate. Of, mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciate reading uh, Revelation that, that way of exploring the worst imaginable kinds of things. So, can I ask you another question? Absolutely. Why do why do you think church folks don't make a habit of talking mm. about the Bible's violence? I've been deeply involved as an adult. I'm not counting when I was a kid, but as an adult, I've been deeply involved in three very different church communities. I've done quite a few deep reads with others in community, Bible studies and so forth, but I have never had a substantial conversation with any of them about the Bible's violence. I've never had that conversation with anyone except my students and now with you. Why do you think that is? Why do people avoid that? Oh, it's such a great question. And I was, I'm I'm actually a little bit struck by your believing in people and finding it interesting that that it's not what's being talked about. Um I, I have lots of thoughts about it. I, I think that there's probably, it probably depends on the setting, right? So we could just kind of say, okay, this is, there are a lot of potential reasons. I do think that a, one of the bigger pieces of that motivation of avoiding talking about this is a combination of people having to varying degrees belief in the Bible as being God's word so that whether you think every word was inspired as written, which we're not here to discuss that, but you know that's one way of thinking about it. Or whether you think of it as generally inspired by God, and it's all kind of from God to God's people and this loving you know, connection. Whatever it is, it's being read every week or sometimes every day. And to raise the, the question or raise the point about how prevalent violence is in this book that is given to us from God, I mean, that that feels like a really scary conversation to have because you are challenging. It feels like you're directly raising questions about God Mm. because Mm -hmm. people have a hard time separating those two. Mm -hmm. And then this language of violence, um, you know, why do people not want to talk about it? I mean, are people unconsciously kind of giving a nod to the fact that they're 
this the story of the crucifixion, as you just indicated, is actually quite violent, and yet the version of how to interpret that is really important to them, mm. and so they don't want to undermine that. Yeah, is it the fact that a lot of Christians I know talk about not needing the Hebrew Bible? They don't spend much time reading it, and that's another part of where, at least in my classrooms whether they're Catholic or other students, you know, in other Christian denominations, that's where their shock comes from is that, yeah, they just as an evangelical, for instance, focused on the Newer Testament mm-hmm. readings. And so, they just haven't read them. You know, they might read the others really thoroughly, but they just don't read the Hebrew Bible because they think of it as not being necessary. And so, I think maybe some of it is that sometimes Christians don't really think that the Hebrew Bible matters that much to them. And if God is a violent God there, well, who really cares? Because I've got the God of the Newer Testament who's all love and light, as you say, which is actually not really a fair characterization. Yeah. You know, if, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if God is the one demanding violence, that, that's going to take a lot of deep conversation to work that out, to figure out what to do with that. And a lot of people don't have time for that. (laughs) I I understand. Yeah, that's true. A lot of people don't have time for that. (laughs) You're right. You're reminding me we're very privileged to be able to sit around and, and talk about this. And I, um, we are, but, I'm wondering what you think. What do you, you know, you've had these experiences. Why do you think the the people you were with were not interested in those conversations? I think what you said is correct, that it's different for different groups. I think, so when I was a, a Quaker, I'm still a Quaker at heart, but I spent the longest amount of time in a Quaker meeting. I mean, 18 years of my life was spent in Quaker community. And the Quakers that I was among, I'm sure this is not true of all Quakers, but the Quakers that I was among, we barely ever read the Bible and we almost never talked about it. And I think because (laughs) Quakers are such peace-loving people, one of the central (laughs) testimonies is um, nonviolence. And so it's some kind of an embarrassment, and nobody knows what to Mm -hmm. say about the fact that Quaker tradition grew out of Christian groups reading this collection that has so many violent stories in it. So I think my impression, I don't mean to be overly flip, but I did get the impression that Quakers just don't know what to say about the Bible. It is so incredibly violent. And we never talked about it much. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. a central Mm -hmm. focus. Our central focus was a book called Quaker Faith and Practice, which is writings by lots of different Quakers. And we did read the Bible in the United Church of Christ that I attended for, I want to say, five-ish years, five, six years. And we were very intellectual and we were spiritual seekers. And so we were not grappling really with any of the kernels of historical accounting in the text. I think sometimes there are these kernels of historical experiences, remembered experiences that I I think of the storytellers as remembering, so filtered through memory. And yeah, I think we were more focused on ways that we could mine the stories for wisdom or insight, and we just weren't as focused. And also, I think both in, in Quaker tradition and also in United Church of Christ tradition, no one is all of that. No, no one is um, all that concerned about theology. Quakers have no creed. There's a lot of theological diversity in the Quaker meeting. So that problem that you get with violence and inerrancy, Quakers don't have it. And United Church of Christ people don't have it because those are not traditions that hold the Bible to be inerrant. So if anything, if God is portrayed in there as doing anything horrific, already in those traditions, the book is held with a sense that it it isn't a direct clear window that you're looking through onto the reality of the divine. In the tradition, the assumption about the text is that it's written by people, and it's about people's experience of the divine filtered through memory and filtered through a lot of storytelling processes. So I I think there wasn't as urgent of a sense of needing to deal with the violence. But I I still 
feel like it really needs to be dealt with for for many reasons. And and I do have theological concerns about it. And I want to go back to something that you said when you were commenting a moment ago. This, there's this thing that always happens in class when I'm talking about biblical texts with students. Over and over and over, students will say, well, why does God do blank? Why does God do blank? Why didn't God just blank? And I never want to be overly flippant about this. I'm aware I have all these layers of literary theory, postmodernist theory, mm-hmm. and all of these ideas about yeah. the way that texts work. So I don't like to be too flip about it, but there is a big gap. I mean, I might read a Bible story. I mean, let's just say the in the book of Joshua, right? And it's this very famous moment when mm-hmm. God commands Joshua to, you know, kill every man, woman, child, everything that breathes, kill them all dead. That sort of ancient Middle Eastern total war thing comes out of God's mouth. So I get why that would be very upsetting to someone who holds the Bible to be inerrant. And if they think that the Bible represents divine action directly, that's really a problem. I don't read the Bible that way. And it's interesting to try to talk through that reading difference. And I ask my students to try saying, rather than why did God do blank, why did God do blank, could we ask, why did the storytellers portray God as blank? And what could be the rhetorical purpose of the text in putting these words in God's mouth. So for me, there are these layers of mediation between the divine and the text representing the divine. But that representation piece, sometimes for some Bible readers, it's as though that representation piece and the complications of representing the divine, it's almost like it's it's not there. That what you read is what you get. What you read is the divine reality, no layer. yeah. Yes, and not just the divine reality, but what the divine wants you to know. And so the there's the focus on what are we supposed? What is God trying to tell mm. us here? What does God want for us here in what he he <laughs> is yeah. saying to us? Yeah. And I do something similar. I'd like to say, why do you think God is being depicted, yeah. just d- doing and saying this? Similar to your language, yeah. I think. It, it, and that is a very hard shift yeah, to make. It is quite a shift for someone who's. Yeah, yeah, it is quite a shift. Um, yeah, I think of it as a like some sort of victory. If by the end of the semester they can even consider yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> get a little daylight between the idea just a little of bit, God just and that. the text, yeah. just that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, listen, I want to talk about there, there's a <laughs> it's a very darkly comic moment, but you know, there's this movie yes, Dead yes. Man by the independent American film director Jim Jarmusch. And um, I'm going to, we'll talk about the film a little bit more at the end. I don't want to say too, too much now, but I'll just say now that there's a comic moment in the movie where the punk rock star Iggy Pop plays a woman in the American Wild West. And this woman is about to serve her weird pseudo family dinner. But first she says grace, right? The, the, people that she's serving dinner to calls for grace. So she opens up the Bible and her grace is a passage from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 46. And and here it is. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So that's funny, not funny, right? That's a funny, not funny (laughs) moment in the movie. For me, it really calls attention to the normalization of violence throughout both Christian testaments. And I feel like the movie in that moment is asking us to consider Like, what do you make of the presence of such intense violence in this holy book, this good book 
that people turn to, to as an act of piety and, you know, kind of performing some type of goodness. And this is what's in that book. And what do we make of that? And I feel like the movie is asking us to think about that. Absolutely. I mean, I, any of those lines, I might want to just repeat, you know, this day, I, you know, will the Lord deliver into my hand? We're going to smite you. Like, we're all the, your bodies are going to be bird food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's a promise from God. Yeah. I, you know, I, um, when you referenced this, it, it, I immediately thought of that scene. It's fairly popular uh, or well-known scene from Pulp Fiction, where Samuel L. Jackson's character does something similar, where he quotes from Ezekiel this verse about God essentially delivering punishment as a just God for those who have brought about iniquity need to be punished. And it's this wild, fantastic, it's almost the flip side of this one that you've quoted or that you've referenced for us, because this one is a funny, (laughs) funny, odd pairing. When it happens in Pulp Fiction, it's, let's take seriously what that looks like when God annihilates Mm -hmm. people because God has deemed or the people around them have deemed that they are unrighteous, that they are sinful, and the destruction of them is justified. And here goes a character just you know, killing people. You know, I'm not a, I'm not on the Pulp Fiction fan wagon. I just, I, but I appreciate what yes. they're doing. You know, I appreciate what it's doing. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, one of the producers and editors for Wild Olive. I have some questions for you about today's material. First, what movies can you think of that use Bible passages to preface extreme violence? Does the extreme violence in the Bible feel different to you from the extreme violence all around us and in so much pop culture? For example, movies, games, TV, the evening news. What are your thoughts? You know, how many times do people hear something, you know, even if you do have it read in a setting, you know, how many times do people actually play out in their minds what's being depicted in scripture so that this kind of a thing, whether it's from Dead Man this wild grace or other examples, you know, are people conscious of, aware of what these, what what's being implied here? And in, and in the case of our conversation, what's being ascribed to God, right? That this kind of violence is not just okay, but is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I've ever heard inerrantists say about this type of violence is so totally unsatisfying to me. But I've heard people say things like, well, God's justice is tough, (laughs) or uh, God is God, and God does what God wants, and we won't understand it. it, it, There's such a difference between divine perspective and human perspective that we just can't understand a slaughter. I just can't. It just doesn't work for me. I know it works for some people. It doesn't work for me. I'm writing about a poem by one of our recent poet laureates of the United States, Joy Harjo, actually our very first Native American poet laureate. Joy Harjo is a Muscogee Creek woman. So I've been reading An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who carefully documents the influence of the Bible on the violent mindset of European Hmm. immigrants who seized land from Native Americans. And many European invaders took inspiration for this violent conquest from the book of Joshua, seeing North America as a new promised land and seeing Europeans as the new children of Israel, never mind if they were not Jewish, that's how they thought (laughs) about it. Um, And then Native Americans as the new Canaanites. Uh, There are legal documents, letters, speeches, journal entries by immigrant men who directly compare the violent conquest of the Americas with the violent conquest narrated in the book of Joshua. Senator Thomas Benton of Missouri defended Andrew Jackson's slaughter of Seminole people in Florida, saying this, and this is a quote from Benton, the children of Israel entered the promised land with implements of husbandry in one hand and weapons of war in the other. 
end quote. So it's really, really direct. It's not an abstract influence. They really were thinking about this. Do you want to comment on that? I think I don't want to comment on the senator from Missouri, (laughs) but I do uh, partly because I... Yeah, I'm not well informed on the whole conversation there, but he is following in a very well-worn tradition. And we have, you know, the early fathers of not just the men and the, the people who were the first few waves of immigrants from Europe here to this continent, but also founding fa- men we refer to as founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson uh, has a really, really uh, striking example of perpetuating that Joshua narrative of conquering peoples and of what what also happened in that vein, which was the considering the people already living here as barbarians who need to be civilized, and at times that means Christianize them or educate them, and we're familiar with and are hearing more about the ways, the horrific ways that played out for Native peoples on this continent. But Thomas Jefferson even refers to the Native women, comparing them to Ruth, who is a foreign woman to the Israelite people. She's a Moabite. And he talks about their sexual lasciviousness. <laughs> and he talks about... Oh, goodness. You know, he he makes a kind of the two thing, that she's sexually promiscuous and that these Native women are similarly sexually promiscuous. But that also these Ruth becomes a convert. And that's one of the things that men in the church have focused on is that Ruth converts to being an Israelite person instead of a Moabite. So taking on the God of the Israelites. And and Jefferson talks about her through that lens also that in a sense, she's the Ruth is the prominent example for Native women to, you know, let themselves be Christianized or, you know, Europeanized or whatever. And it's just striking to me the many times throughout the history of European settlers on this continent turning to these texts as if it is absolutely reasonable to do so and saying and applying it without any question. No one is pushing back on that. Who pushed back right on Senator Benton? Why why is that a legitimate right. move, rhetorical or interpretive move to make, right? And because it's God's word and the authority that goes with that, then people sit in awe instead of <laughs> having a way to engage that as semi-problematic because the text yeah. itself is, and then n- not to mention the way it's being used. Yeah. 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 yeah thank you. Um for all of that, uh, I guess for me, um, I feel like anyone who feels really invested in the Bible, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's good to really grapple with this. Like, right. I don't want to turn my face away from these kinds of uses in the Bible because I would like to exactly. not see them repeated. It's that cliche of you will, you're doomed to repeat history if you don't learn it. And that's why. I'm bringing this up. I'm not bringing it up to bash the Bible. I'm bringing it up to grapple with it as a person who's very invested Mm -hmm. in biblical text. So I just wanted to say that's why I'm bringing it up. (laughs) So we do have a poem that we would like to share with our listeners. Um, Have a really interesting poem. Before we read (laughs) it, before you read it, Jennifer, (laughs) let me give everybody some background. So it's a poem by... Native American writer Sherman Alexie. It's called Crow Testament. Alexie is a contemporary Native American writer of the Pacific Northwest's Spokane and Kirtland tribes. Alexie grew up on the Spokane Indian Reservation. He's won lots of awards, including the American Book Award, the Penn Faulkner Award, and some of his celebrated works include The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fist Fight in Heaven. There's also Reservation Blues, war dances. He's also written a lot of poetry, and his poetry explores the struggle of contemporary Native Americans on and off the reservation to cope with the legacy of colonization and genocide and to build vital, joyful lives in the wake of of that historical trauma. Alexi approaches the subject matter very humorously, often very ironically, with references to pop culture and references to Jewish and Christian 
religious traditions and texts. And I have to acknowledge mm-hmm. here before we go any further that Alexei's reputation has been tarnished recently by charges of sexual misconduct. He has owned up to his wrongdoing. He has apologized for the harm he's caused. And I've made a decision not to cancel him from my research agenda. So, but I didn't want to let that go unsaid. And I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that the poem combines a Native American trickster figure, Crow, with multiple Bible references. And it narrates the history and the aftermath of white European violence against indigenous Americans. Alexi uses the stories of Cain and Abel, the Battle of Jericho, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and other maybe more oblique references, let's say. I would say that what Crow Testament does is situate colonial violence within the larger story of human violence that's narrated in the Hebrew Bible and the Christian scriptures. So that's that's a little preview. Would you like to read the poem? Absolutely. Crow Testament by Sherman Alexi. Cain lifts crow, that heavy blackbird, and strikes down Abel. Damn, says crow. I guess this is just the beginning. The white man, disguised as a falcon, swoops in and yet again steals a salmon from crow's talons. Damn, says crow. I could swim, I would have fled this country years ago. The crow god, as depicted in all of the reliable crow Bibles, looks exactly like a crow. Damn, says crow. This makes it so much easier to worship myself. Among the ashes of Jericho, crow sacrifices his firstborn son. Damn, says crow. A million nests are soaked with blood. When crows fight crows, the sky fills with beaks and talons. Damn, says Crow, it's raining feathers. Crow flies around the reservation and collects empty beer bottles, but they are so heavy he can only carry one at a time. So, one by one, He returns them, but gets only five cents a bottle. Damn, says Crow. Redemption is not easy. The final verse. Crow rides a pale horse into a crowded powwow, but none of the Indians panic. Damn, says Crow. I guess they already live near the end of the world. Thank you. I love that Mm. ending. Mm. I really (laughs) love the way that poem ends. It delivers a little gut punch to me that I feel is very productive. Yes. (laughs) Let me say. Agreed. (laughs) Yeah. So there are lots of different parts of this poem that we can talk about. But as you know, when we were preparing to record this episode, We talked especially about stanza Mm -hmm. three, the crow god, as depicted in all of the reliable crow Bibles, looks exactly like a crow. Damn, says crow. This makes it so much easier to worship myself. When I read that line, it reminds me of the part of our conversation earlier when we were talking about the representation of God in biblical texts. And I feel like the speaker of the poem here calls out this problem of, well, what happens if you imagine a deity that is innately violent? Then does it give you, as a human being, some kind of license to also be violent? And I do feel like that's part of the implication of the poem. Would you agree with that or do you see it differently? I No, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that there's a certain amount of this depicting God as we are that happens unintentionally, unconsciously. You know, uh, we used to talk in seminary about the Psalms and about the way God is depicted. You become like the God you worship. 
right? The characteristics mm. ascribed to the God that you worship are what are the characteristics that are most important to you as a community. I mean, that's just the way it works, consciously or not. So, yes, the God, this God is violent at times, and it's what the people, historically speaking, needed. There's a whole different conversation there, right, to, to say what yeah. is it that this group of people were struggling to do. But I, yeah, I just, I love verse three, stanza three. Yes, it looks just like Crow. And how many times, how many times have people stopped to think about that? I, you know, I don't know that people do. And I, I think it's a really, I mean, it's a powerful, it's a powerful element of the Bible. It's a powerful element of this poem. And, and is it really that, damn, this makes it so much easier to worship myself. You know, what is Alexi trying to say there? Um, when God looks like us, is it that we're trying to worship ourselves or does it that it allows us to perpetuate our ideas and to claim them as godlike and to, and to justify them, justify our actions, which may be a form of worshiping ourselves, right? I like the way that you read it. That really works for me. I do think that the stanza seems to be implying that the the worship of a violent God justifies and licenses human violence. And I, I would say when we read that quotation from Senator Benton, that's exactly what he's yes. doing, likening himself to this violent action that supposedly was initiated by God. And that is likening himself to it God. Is. So um, I do feel like that's exactly what the poem is is asking us to do. I know that you particularly, I don't know if like is the world, but you were <laughs> particularly struck <laughs> by stanza five. Um, mm. I, I was struck by all of them. I do want to be clear. <laughs> I think each one yeah, makes I, such I know powerful you are, you claims. <laughs> but, yeah, but this one about, um, okay. Actually, it's, it's stanza yes, four. Yes, I was wondering. I was like, four. I'm think? sorry, that, that we talked yeah. about. Um, Among the ashes of Jericho, Crow sacrifices his firstborn son. Damn, says Crow, a million nests are soaked with blood. So you were commenting on the the fusion yes. of really two different allusions, maybe even more. Right. Um, but the story of the book of Joshua and the alleged conquest of Jericho, just the story of the conquest of Jericho, I, I think that we already have mentioned on a previous podcast that there is a very strong consensus among biblical scholars and archaeologists that this conquest of Jericho didn't happen the yeah. way that it's depicted Correct. in the Bible. And and that's great news. And <laughs> we don't have to talk all about that again, right? right? I'm just going to say, let's just have a hallelujah if it didn't yeah, happen that exactly. way. Um, but combining Jericho and the idea of a sacrifice of the firstborn son, which is also an act of a near act of gruesome yes. violence. And you noted the, the fusion of those two images. Did you want to say anything about that? Yeah. I, you know, they, both of those stories, the, the story of conquering Jericho, I mean, that's a story that, at least in the church I grew up in and churches of the students, many of my students, uh, this is a story that children enact. Right. The surrounding of Jericho, so, you know, circling Jericho, mm. yelling, pr pretending to yell on the seventh day and the walls fall down and look, God is victorious. Mm. And here we are. This idea of God can be this kind of a God for us. Um, it is a mm -hmm. powerful impression and that, you know, this is how strong God is. Um, and then that that with that in mind, that in hand, they went on to slaughter everyone living in the land at the time. And that that for me is terrifying, not just because people don't understand that it's not actually history. It's not actually how I'm putting in air quotes, God actually behaves. Yeah. But that people believe that it is okay and justified as you, as you've already said, as we've already noted several times in this podcast, but it is also, I wanted to say it's striking to me how rarely 
my students would have been aware of that prior to my class. You know, when we talk, when I point mm. this out, did you know that settlers coming to this continent thought of themselves as Israelites and, and named various groups of native peoples according to the names in Canaan, the groups of people in Canaan, right? Not just to all Canaanites. Anyway, so, you know, I, I find it a fascinating juxtaposition of a reference to the slaughter of millions and then this other wild, you know, the story of Abraham almost sacrificing his son Isaac is horrific to me, just in general, because Sarah isn't involved in this. And that on some really visceral level, I just, the Mm. story is really hard for me. You know, it was meant to be (laughs) a signal Mm -hmm. that this people who worship Yahweh are not going to do this act, but that gets dismissed both in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, and therefore in the whole thing that upholding Abraham as a man of faith and trusting and all this stuff. And wow, when you bring these two together, and Alexi points out, this just means there's a whole lot of blood all over the place. And I'm laughing because it's yeah. just slaughter and and awful things have come about because of these two stories specifically, not alone. I don't know. I'm just, you know, I'm looking at the notes I had taken and I just think it's it's really interesting. It, you know, this it calls for it echoes what happens in the escape of Egypt, right? The slaughter of the firstborn. Um and and then the almost slaughter of Abraham's firstborn. We have these interesting stories that are kind of juxtaposed there in that. Um, but that in the this testament, it's more a reference to that the slaughter of people out of Egypt, and which is necessary for the people to go conquer Jericho. I don't know. There are just so many, yeah, so many um, violent, essential stories here in the storyline. Right, that people still refer to, whether or not they're taking them seriously. I'm trying to keep this with native in reference to native peoples on this continent, but yes. I can't help but point out that when people celebrate the Seder or the Passover meal, Pesach, however you want to refer to mm-hmm. it, they focus mm-hmm. on the deliverance out of Egypt for the Israelite people. But I can't help wanting to remind everybody, but that is based upon the slaughter, the death of firstborns. I mean, you can't have one without the other. And that's where I I join you, Jean, in wanting to say we need to interrogate these scriptures, these texts, and be clear about what the whole thing is doing, not just the piece we're picking out of context because it sounds nice. Yeah, no. Yeah. I agree with you, of course. Here we <laughs> yeah, are no. interrogating. <laughs> we, we do nothing but I interrogate. Know. You are reminding me. I, I know we thought we might have time to return to the Jim Jarmusch <laughs> movie, but I don't think we'll have time. But this entire conversation is reminding me of one of the most influential books of literary theory I think I've ever read, and it's Elaine Scarry's The Body in Pain. Mm. And she makes the argument in that book that pain and the body in pain and we could add to that blood guts all of that bodily horror what she says is that there's nothing more ontologically persuasive than the body in pain meaning i I've just I know ontological is such a gigantic word, one of those $50 words, but all it means is that if you want to believe in the reality of something, creating a spectacle of the body in pain, creating a spectacle of blood, it is the most persuasive thing that you can do to demonstrate that something is real. Now, she works with reports of torture from torture survivors. So Amnesty International, you know, creates these documents that document torture. I don't know how she managed to get through all of that and write a book. What a, what a jolly year. Mm. But that when regimes 
turn to torture and war, it's precisely because they don't have power. And they are attempting to construct themselves as powerful yes. and as real yes. by by slaughtering. And I do think that many biblical texts attempt to illustrate the reality and the power of God by presenting readers yes. with spectacles of yes. slaughter. And I will say, for one, that it's also an option to accept as real an experience of the divine without the slaughter. (laughs) (laughs) Skip the slaughter, skip the blood, right? But but it does seem to be a very um, entrenched human dynamic. I would say absolutely, but it's also an immature version. Right. It's, it's not, we've not allowed our imagery or options to evolve and grow the way our own awareness of the world has. Right. I think that's a big piece of what's happening. I hope I didn't cut short the powerful comment you were making there. I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's a very powerful way to look at and try to understand why these ancient texts have so much violence and slaughter embraced. Yeah. Right. And somehow valorized. And then I want to say, and that's an ancient and immature, immature in terms of humanity way that we can then grow past, evolve past, I think, as people. <laughs> that's my hope, at least. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that vision. I, I will sign up for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Listen, I want to ask you one last totally impossible question. Oh, great. I, I, I often <laughs> say to my students that... The questions most worth asking are t- totally impossible to answer. So I know that this is impossible to answer, but I would like to ask it anyway. I'm somewhat haunted by the awareness of what people can do with selective quotation of the Bible and with interpretations of the Bible that legitimate violence or demonize particular groups of people. Is there any way for Bible readers, people who are really invested in the Bible, who use it to make life decisions or try to understand the world or try to get a sense of direction, is there any way for folks like that, like me, to protect themselves against these kinds of harmful readings of biblical text? Do we just become dangerous when we read the Bible, when we look to the Bible for ideas about shaping our day-to-day lives? What would you say to those of us who do read the Bible for life direction? Is there an intellectual or spiritual hygiene that we can practice to guard against weaponizing the Bible in service of violent or prejudicial social projects? I mean, what would you say about that? Well, I would say that I do think there's a way to try to engage that whole realm that you have just very nicely described. And I think it is about two things. One, being aware of what you're reading. So reading actively instead of passively submitting yourself to it and finding a way to be lulled into finding it okay. And then the second would be to be be aware ahead of time what your understanding of who God is is. Have that already defined for yourself so that, for instance, and this is perhaps a, in a sense a conversation for another day, but if I were to um, to s- subscribe to it, the existence of God, for me, that is going to be defined by a certain set of things. Love, empowerment, life force, life, you know, positive, you know, growth, supportiveness, connection, all of these positive, life-affirming things, so that when you come to a biblical text, you have a filter, you have a lens, you have something that tells you the, the, the parts of this collection of sacred writings that endorse the things that I believe are of God. And you have your own understanding of that. That's from God. That matches with what God is. And that those become texts that you can champion or that you can embrace and celebrate and say and point to. And those that don't meet those criteria of life, life affirming, um, you know, in, engagement, encouragement, whatever it is on your list, then you can say those are more about the humans who are writing 
than they are about the God that I love, worship, want to be about, connect with, whatever. Mm, thank you. Yeah. You didn't I expect me to have an answer, did you? <laughs> oh, Jennifer. That's actually I always what I do. expect you right? to have an answer. <laughs> I always expect that's you to have sweet. an answer. I know you're going to have an answer. <laughs> um, do well, you have thoughts about that? Well, I like the, I don't know, you can tell me, you're the religious studies expert here. Is it part of Episcopal tradition, the the three-legged stool or the tricycle image where when we are looking for knowledge of the divine, we look at text, experience, and tradition that it, we're, we're never looking only at one mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if we only looked at, say, the story of Exodus and God being incredibly harsh with the Egyptians, then we could conclude that God is violent and doesn't like Egyptians if that's the only text <laughs> we were going to base it on. Mm -hmm. But if we add tradition to that, if we add experience to that, then we become a little less vulnerable, I think, to theological distortions that come as a result of approaching biblical texts without enough of a sense of context mm -hmm. and a sense of that difference between the cultural context of the ancient Israelites and our cultural context. I mean, I, I think, I think reading without context is what really runs us into trouble. I also think it's good to read with people who are not like you. Mm -hmm. If you read in an echo chamber where everybody that you know reads that same text exactly like you do, I think people can really get in trouble. Mm -hmm. And I think reading with secularists and atheists and and Quakers, I don't mean that they're all <laughs> exactly the same, but <laughs> although there are plenty of Quaker atheists, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think reading with others who don't think like you mm -hmm. is helpful. Mm -hmm. Being in an ideologically diverse mm -hmm. reading community can help. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So that's all we got for today, listeners. Thank you for coming along. And I'll turn it over to Matt to give you some details on where to find the things that we referenced today. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you, Jean. This was a particularly enjoyable conversation. Hey, this is Matt. Thanks for listening to Episode 7 of the Wild Olive Podcast. If you like game-changing conversations about the Bible, literature, and culture, please hit subscribe and tell some friends about Wild Olive. Nick Stubblefield composes our music, and you'll find episode notes at www.wildolivebibleandculture.org. You can ask Jean or Jennifer a question by emailing connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>